Wow. Um, yeah, so we're live now. So yeah, that's 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 crazy. I actually have a training that's coming up. Uh, there's this lady I, I follow, and she's going to do some training. Actually, well, no, she did it on Antifa already. She's going to look into some right-wing groups uh, soon. Mm -hmm. So so I'm looking forward to, to that. But I did not hear about this uh, Antifa it, thing, man. <laughs> it's on, you know, it's not It's not anything real. It's oh, okay. people making stuff up. Oh, okay, okay. But it's just amazing that what they come up with. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Listen, it's always it's always something, man. It's always something. We are we are not in a good way as far as the social dynamics of this country, which is which is really really yeah. bad, you know, really bad and sad. So, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so Chris Casey's chiming in already. Thanks so much. Let's see. Hey, Cab. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks. Then he says, I hear the new SWAT is the social worker <coughs> therapist. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we're doing everything else, right, Chris? So we're doing everything else. <laughs> so, so yeah. So uh, we got a couple people already viewing. So thank you so much. Uh, so uh, today we have my special guest, Mark Neal, retired officer from Colorado. He's going to tell us about himself. He, I follow him on uh, Instagram. He uh, has some great posts that are that are going on. Go over to Instagram, Onyx. L, what is that? Onyx? Onyx. Onyx training. So on it, yeah. Onyx, Onyx TG. Onyx, Onyx TG. Yeah. So make sure you guys go over there and follow him. And uh, he's got some good videos. And I'm um, sure he's going to tell us about the training that he does. And I'm going to give it to you, Mark Neal. Thanks for coming on. Well, I appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, it's you know I'm just trying to do my thing. I. I retired out of Fort, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, so I was up there for 20 years. And uh, my big thing, I do uh, tactical training, right? So, um, but I also do, through my company, Onyx, uh, I do diversity and uh, like anti-bias policing strategy training. Um, I've been doing that for 20 years. I did that when I was with Fort Collins as well. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I'm <clears throat> like you, you know, I, I look at your stuff and, and read your stuff and it's, just trying to re, kind of reconnect the community with law enforcement, right? Reminding law enforcement that, hey, we're members of the community first and foremost, and our job is just to be police officers, you know, keep the peace for people and protect. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of go as we, as we talk about it, I'll kind of, you know, delve more into it, but it's, it's a tough thing nowadays because we just, there's such a separation that I see. I train all over the country and last year I was able to start training internationally. And um, so I've been around the country for about the last 15 years. And it's seeing a trend of this separation between police and the community at large, right? And it's trying to figure out how to uh, do get that back together with uh, the training that I do, right? I do like... I do tactical training, man. I, tra I train, you know, barricade ops, high-risk warrants, hostage rescue, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, active shooter courses. So I definitely believe in aggressive tactics when necessary, but I'm also very much, you know, my company, my my whole motto is it's human-centered tactical training. So always keeping in mind that you're dealing with human beings, right? situation as human beings and we got to have these principles and these concepts 
that help drive our tactics. Because to me, it's like if you have really good tactics, but you have no principles, no concept, no foundation, it's like having a, a Ferrari with no steering wheel. <laughs> you got you got this horsepower and this magnificent car that can do whatever you want to, but you got no way to control it, you know, no way to direct it. And so it's trying, my, my training is all based on using those principles and concepts to drive our tactics so that we're making good decisions. So <clears throat> tell us about your, your career there in law enforcement. I mean, what, what drew you to, to the, to the uh, tactical side? Oh, SWAT, SWAT stuff. Um, <clears throat> well, to begin with, I got into policing because I don't like bullies. <laughs> I can't stand okay. bullies. Okay. And so I've always been the person that, hey, if, if there's somebody picking on you, let me know and we'll get them to stop. Right. And so getting into police, uh, policing, it was kind of, you know, I always wanted to be on SWAT. I want to do, uh, you know, watching all the shows. I watched the original SWAT on TV, you know, and yeah. I wanted to put my hat down backwards and everything. But, uh, you know, once I got into it, understanding really how important it is and how critical uh, advanced tactics are for civilian policing, right? How to be able to kind of control the chaos of a situation and, uh, you know, achieve a resolution that is the best for everybody involved, right? It's, it's how can you do that? And so getting that extra training and that extra knowledge, the extra equipment and, and having those resources to be able to solve those problems that, you know, it's like, the, you know, like you say, when people are in trouble, they call the police, right? When police are in trouble, they call SWAT. SWAT doesn't have anybody to call. You got to be able to solve the problems. And so it's just, it's being able to do that, that really drew me to it. And, you know, when I, at first I thought it was, you know, kick the door and run in. But then once you start to understand the concepts and the principles, you realize that there's so much more to that. So you talked about before about this, we got this divide going on. And uh, so I want to ask you two questions here. How do we get here in this country? And you talked about how you go over to, uh, you, you said you go over to different countries. Um, and do they have that same level of divide that you've seen in other countries? So how do we get here? How did we get here? How did we get here to this big divide that we got? Man, I, I think we had to try. We had to work hard at it. Um, you know, <laughs> we did a good job. We did a good we job. Did a hey, we're professionals, right? We're going to do a good job. Whatever we do, it's going to be a good job. Um, you know, people can say all kinds of things about it, but what I've seen over time is that it's kind of a, a cycle, right? Um, if you see that we've kind of gotten away from what we called community policing, I still see it being thrown out there by agencies saying, hey, we do community policing, but they really don't, you know? That's, it's being practiced by individual officers at agencies, but organizationally, we talk about community policing, but we don't do it. Because to me, when we, you know, uh, when I got in, I got in in 92, started policing in 92 and you know it was just starting to come back around right you know because you used to have the beat cop who walked everywhere they didn't drive and so they spent their day in like a four or five block area just getting to know people and so they became the people they dealt with they saw them as people they didn't see them as a call they didn't see them as a response a problem to solve 
They just saw him as people who had problems occasionally, right? And so I think that once we started to get cars and we started to do all this stuff, we started to separate. In the 90s, we started getting back into community policing. Like I know, I, I worked as a community officer. I rode a bicycle, I skateboarded, I did whatever to just try to connect with the community. And then that stuff kind of all, oh yeah, we can't do that. We got into the data-driven policing, right? We got to mm -hmm. quantify our, our, our existence, right? It's not enough that you're just an officer there. It's like, what are you doing? How many tickets? How much this? How much that? I mean, you know, you, you, you're a supervisor, right? You're an administrator. So you yeah. understood <laughs> what you had to try to, right? You, you got to answer to the people who are saying, well, show me what you've been doing. Right. And, and my thing is, when you're looking at community policing, it's oftentimes the crime that doesn't get committed, right? As a community officer, it's a crime that, that you can't quantify a crime that doesn't get committed because you made friends with people or because you helped them understand how to make their house a little less um, you know, appetizing for burglars or whatever, you can't quantify that. And I think that once we start, once we got, went back to this data-driven policing and police officers started, you know, I got to hammer these calls and I got to get to these calls and then their anxiety starts to go up. And I'll tell you, I think that we've also done a, a poor job of training people but as you know, they start to get that separation from the community again, now they start looking at us and them. You don't understand what I go through. You don't understand how hard it is to do what I do. And you know, once we have that going, it's like a dysfunctional family, right? Mm. And people don't, now we don't want to listen to each other. I don't want to hear what you got to say. I want you to hear what I say. And I just, it's, you know, it's, it's a whole lot of stuff, but I'm, I'm looking at stuff. I'm just like, we started to get that separation again. And then it's easy to see people as not humans. Right. Mm. You know, it's like Absolutely. when I teach, when I teach hostage rescue, right. You say, if the suspect starts to dehumanize the, the hostages, you better start working on an intervention because once you start to see people as less than people, you can abuse them, you can mistreat them, you can hurt them, and you don't care, right? Think about people who say, you know, call police pigs. Mm -hmm. Why are they calling you a pig? You know, because they want to dehumanize you. And I think that's what we've just, we've been doing that for so long. And then you mix in that with police officers, you mix in a, uh, a kind of a, um, a military mentality as far as advanced tactics goes now, a days, even the wording, right? Uh, you start, well, this went back to Nixon, but you start talking about a war on drugs, right? So now you're at war. Well, there's only two sides in a war, right? There's our side and the enemy. And as police officers, if you're in a war on drugs or there's a war on police, what are the other people now? They're the enemy. I mean, this words matter, right? Words matter. And so how do you start to see things? So now we create that antagonistic relationship, right? And you look at all the police shirts and stuff that are that are being sold now on, online and everything, and it's like we're really creating that environment. And then we wonder why it's so successful. Because again, we go back to we're really good at doing stuff, right? We're the professionals. Mm. Absolutely. I want to say hi to uh, Chris. I, once again, there's uh, Mark Sampson, Mark Chereau, 
uh, Karen and uh, Mike McKenna, and so I guess there's a bunch of other people listening. Like uh, Mark and I cannot see who's here, uh, so you have to kind of say hi if you want to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, but I certainly thank you guys for for joining in, even yeah. even if you don't want to be acknowledged. Uh, thanks for coming on. <laughs> uh, so you and I were talking before uh, when we first hooked up. And you said something I really want you to kind of repeat to the to the audience. Now you talked about being a cop versus a police officer. Uh, expound upon that for us, if you would. Uh, first things first. I'm 100% supporter of police, 100%. And be, but hold police accountable. Okay, don't get me wrong. I hold police accountable, 100%. And so um, my thing has always been, to me, the term police officer, law enforcement officer. That's that. That's a term of honor and respect, and it's a term that you have to earn. And so, you know, I kind of I joke about it, but I'm I'm really serious too. As I say, to me, cops is a four-letter word. I don't call police officers cops. If and, and you know, it might might be bad, but if I call somebody a cop, it's because I don't particularly think they're doing that good of a job at policing, right? And so, but that's my thing is, is I think that police officer, law enforcement officer, agent, federal agent or whatever, that's a term that you earn because of what I believe are the cornerstones of policing. You have character, you have integrity, and you have accountability, right? And I think that you earn those titles. And once you've earned those titles, I think you should be called by that title. Because I look at policing as a profession. It's not a job. It's not a vocation. It's a profession. You have to be certified. You have to continue to update your certifications. You have to uh, continue education. And so it's the same as any other profession. You have to you specialize in some things. And to me, I, I don't like hearing police officers say, I'm a cop, cop. To me, it's like, and you're selling yourself short. You're, you, you are way more valuable than that. So that's just, that's just me. Well, I think that I think that that actually is good. I think that gives people something that they should strive for is to say, okay, I'm not this uh, this slang term, but I have this professionalism yeah. about me. And I, I think that that's something yeah. that people really should keep in mind. Uh, there's uh, Mike was a detective. Uh, Mike was a detective. Karen was a detective, uh, and that's all I can see right now. Mark is an officer, uh, so and they and they earn these titles, and I think that people yeah. ought to ought to earn. Uh, and, and and have whatever title they have in high in high esteem. It means something, you know. It means something. That's why a lot of times we have these promotional ceremonies, or even when you get sworn in to become an officer, it means something. And, it, and if it, mm -hmm. when it stops meaning something to you, to the person intrinsically, and they tarnish the badge, as it were, that that's when problems start. So I agree with I agree with that. I liked it, and I and I agree with that. Um, I asked you before if you could elaborate. You've been over the in other countries. How is policing much different? Are they having the problems that we are here? And I've I just got the opportunity to go to the UAE last year and and teach over there. Um, it's one of the safest safest countries in the world. I mean, it's uh, they're policing great officers, but they really don't have a tactical mindset. They really don't have a uh, survival mindset because they just don't deal with it, right? And that's some of the things like as we talk about stuff, you know, it, it's like if you don't experience it, how can you prepare for it? Right. Or, or if it's not part of your world, how are you supposed to uh, really worry about it? Right. Um, like we were trying to trying to teach him combat firearms. Right. Like combat shooting. 
And, you know, they were saying, they, like, you know, we go, okay, three rounds on a target, right? And they're taking eight seconds, nine seconds. And, and <laughs> we're like, what are you doing? And they're all, yeah, but look at my target. I go, yeah, but you're dead, you know? And, get, and we're saying, guys, this is why we're teaching you to go fast and, and be accurate and be quick is because of what we experience in the United States, mm. right? And, but they don't experience that. It's very hard for anybody other than, other than police officers to get guns. So they very rarely come up against guns. Um, you know, the way their culture is, is that there's so many um, procedures that they have to do between in dealing with uh, people of a different sex that they have, that it just, it just goes a different way than, than in the U.S., right? So they have a much different view of policing than we do here. And it's kind of the same thing when you go around the country, right? Like I go, I mean, I've, I've literally trained one person agencies, like total agency has one officer um, in, a, in a class I've taught. And I've taught uh, officers from NYPD. So I've taught the entire spectrum of agencies in this country. And it's kind of the same thing, right? Depending on where you are, where you work, you may or may not experience things like you you work in well case in point you work up in um you know ken mayor north dakota has two officers you're not dealing with the same stuff that houston pd is dealing with right and so it's hard to imagine it's hard to get uh to that level if you if it's not part of your world you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah, I had a conversation one time with a guy from uh, Australia. I forget, we were on Facebook. I'm surprised we were dialoguing for so long, but but he couldn't understand, you know, all the problems that we were talk that I was talking about and that we were going through here because he couldn't identify with it. Right? They took their guns. I think that you know they outlawed guns there in Australia back yeah. in the 90s or so, something like that. Yeah, 95, so, 96. Yeah, so so you know to become a police officer there. Uh, you know, they just don't deal with it. So they, they, they're more, way more community oriented, way more uh, th thinking about, uh, you, you know, we had a conversation about bringing drunks home and all the kind of other stuff we, we talk about, you know, things we couldn't get away with here yeah. in the US, <laughs> you know, but, the, yeah, but that's, that's, the way, that's the way that they think. And, and so yep. they don't yep. understand why we're having all these problems. Well, as you mentioned, um, these are the problems that we have to deal with. So if you're living in Houston yeah. or, or NYP or, or New York City, then you're going to deal with all this type of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I, I absolutely can see that. So I wanted to have you on to talk about, uh, well, actually, you had some some statistics you wanted to give us or something, right? Some, something you um, want to research? Whenever you, whenever you want to talk about it, man, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me, How, whatever direction you want to go. But okay. I told Our, you, I told you, I have a, I have a talking problem. I enjoy okay. doing it too much, so we can just do whatever. <laughs> okay. Do it however. Okay, so let's, so let's get into what everybody tuned in for, I'm assuming, and that's Brianna yeah. Taylor. Uh, so you taught uh, entry teams and all that kind of stuff as we went through as we went through your your bio there. So um, we all know uh, uh, what's up, Sean. Uh, so we all know um, about what happened. I'm assuming we all know what happened with Brianna Taylor down there in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, you know, the uh, there's a warrant that's being executed, and it was just bungled is not even the right word for it there you know they, they they're looking for somebody who they already had in custody and all kind of crazy nonsense um so why don't you take us through your thoughts about it when you heard about it you know, i mean obviously you're thinking tactically yeah. what, what were your thoughts about it 
Well, um, <clears throat> to begin with, you know, you, you said when we're going to do the show, you know, talk about what went well and what didn't go so well. <laughs> I said, well, to me, the only thing that went well is that the SWAT team didn't do it. <laughs> and, and, and I say that because I know people on the SWAT team then. And um, when it happened, uh, you know, I was, I was curious, but you all, in stuff like that, you know, um, officer-involved stuff like that, you always kind of give some time for that agency to to kind of settle and and before you reach out and say hey what tell me what went on because that's how we learn right that's how we learn is it's through the real events and um so i waited but i got, actually got a call from another guy that i used to work with and he had talked to one of the people there in louisville and you know it was it was pretty much what we thought right it wasn't because i was like i'm i know their swat team doesn't operate like that i know they don't and you know sure enough it wasn't the team it was uh you know like we found out another unit you know the narcs unit unit whatever and that's typically um <clears throat> that's typically the issue that a lot of agencies have is that uh like other units want to serve warrants high risk warrants and the tactical teams train to do it a certain way and you know, there's, like I said, there's a lot of foundational principles and concepts that go into the decision making to serve a warrant. And uh, many other uh, units don't operate under those principles. And so in this case, you know, when they went to serve a warrant, um, uh, let me just real quick, if I can lay down a couple foundations. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Like we operate under the safety priorities, right? The priorities of life. You got your hostages and your victims, number one. You got your uh, innocent bystanders, number two. You have your police officers at number three, and then your suspects at number four. And you keep the people, the people in the situation safe according to those priorities, right? And so you can't, and the problem what happens is, is that when it goes wrong, is that the police officers start switching those priorities around. Like they'll put the apprehension of the suspect above the police officer safety or even above uh, the, the uh, innocent bystanders or the hostages or victims. Um, or they'll put apprehension or they'll put uh, the officer safety ahead of everybody else. And anytime you get those priorities out of order, you're going to make mistakes. If you keep those priorities in order, you will always do the right thing. You got the suspect in for tactics. The suspect's always going to be in a position of tactical advantage, no matter what. And we'll talk about why that that matters in this case, um, because there really were no suspects, right? They're, they neither of the people in the house were wanted, so they were going to the house to that they thought they were going to get some drugs out of the house. So there's no drugs on the priority list. It's only people. So suspects always in a position of tactical advantage. So all of our tactics are geared to try to take the advantage back to us from the suspect because the suspect has it to begin with. Um, then you have the, the uh, processing, right? Your OODA loop processing, right? You have to observe, orient, decide, act. That's how you do everything, process. And so that affects police officers just as it affects the suspect. It's because we have to, have to observe. We have to figure out what's going on. We have to orient ourselves to it. What are we going to do about it? We have to decide what we're going to do about it. We go down our options of action, and then we take action, right? And so if you look at that a suspect is in a position of tactical advantage, 
they're always going to be ahead of us in the OODA loop, right? They're always going to be ahead of us in the processing phase. And so in this case, the problem being is that when they went to the house in the middle of the night to do a no-knock warrant, what are the people most likely, what state are the people most likely going to be in? Asleep, right? And that's why a lot of SWAT teams are, are getting away from middle of the night warrant services because it creates more of a headache and more of a problem on the part of the suspects processing the information they're being given, i.e. a SWAT team is at the front door, right? They're trying to wake up. They're all groggy. If they deal drugs, what do they think might be happening? They're getting ripped off. Home invasion, yeah. yeah. Right? So, right. so the, what are they going to do? They don't realize it's the police. And if the police aren't doing a knock and announce, they're doing a no-knock, what are they doing immediately? They're just coming in the house. And so, you know, that's what a lot of tactical teams, and, and I'm not saying anything that's brand new. I've been teaching this since the early 2000s, is that, that we have to uh, help the suspects catch up to us in the OODA loop because we've decided to do this warrant. We've planned it. Now we've gone to the house. When does the suspect realize we're serving a warrant? When we knock on the door, right? And so they've got to do a lot of catching up to us to where we are. If we don't let them do that, they're going to be behind in the processing. And if, if like what happened here, they do it, they bang on the door, they come in and, you know, there's, there's people saying, Hey, you know, the, the officers are saying we announced our presence. Witnesses are saying, I never heard any police, you know, no police. Apparently uh, the uh, fiance, he was on the phone with the police saying somebody's breaking in my house. And he never heard that it was the police. Uh, he never said, hey, the police are breaking in my house. He said, somebody's breaking in my house. That's why he called the police, right? So you have these people who, who by their actions, weren't criminal. I mean, I'm going by their actions, right? And that he's taking all these steps that a criminal would not take in this situation. Um, now, let's put on to that the, um, the, the shooter... The officer who shot uh, Miss Taylor, where was he positioned, right? And this is something that we teach that you don't do as police officers. However, what's happening now, what, I've, what I'm hearing now, I'm hearing a lot more when I teach is people talking about shooting through walls. And, and you know, my thing is like, wait, we have to shoot at what we know. We can't shoot at what we feel like shooting at. We have to shoot at what we know. We have, we have these these we have this thing the constitution we have laws we have our policy we have our ethics right that we have to shoot at what we know we have to have positive target id positive threat id right that's what we teach everybody in firearms and but i'm hearing more in my teaching my students in my classes is that they've gone to trainings where they're talking about shooting through walls and again this this training that they're getting is is from military and it's a different arena, right? It's a different mission. And so, you know, this, this off, this in the Breonna Taylor killing, this officer ended up shooting through the wind, the bedroom window, through the curtains, through the blinds, through the drapes, whatever was blocking his vision. And he was only shooting because uh, Breonna Taylor's fiance 
was shooting at what he thought was people trying to burglarize his house. So he, the officer had no positive threat ID, let alone target ID. You know, and that is something that we, we definitely train not to do in, the ta in, in police tactics, right? Police advanced tactics. Mm. If you guys have any questions, uh, you can start firing away. Um, I want to ask you about the no-knock warrant process here. Talk us through. I mean, I know you're a SWAT guy. You didn't really do the drug interact, or you didn't do drugs, or, or oh yeah, or, we did drugs. Yeah, we. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We well, I mean, we, we deserve right, more. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, just tell the audience. I mean, yeah. all the all the officers here, but anyone who's not familiar uh, about the no knock no knock warrant process, which you have to prove in order to have a no knock yeah. warrant and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, and that's the thing that that. I'm a big I'm a big fan of going away from no knock warrants because they just they're terrible for police officers decision making. They really hurt our decision making because they put us under some they, we get under some kind of like timer. Right. We got to do this. We got to do this. And no, you don't. There are so many ways to serve a narcotics warrant that are safe for everybody involved, especially the officers and even the suspects. Right. And um, but. You know, no knock warrant, you, you, you're supposed to put in at least a paragraph or two that specifically for this event, why you need to breach a door or breach a window with, before you give sufficient knock and notice to the occupants of the house, right? Because depending on where you work, wherever you work, you know, there are different knock and notice requirements. And um, some require you to wait, you know, 30 seconds, whatever, a minute, what have you, um, before you can attempt to make entry. With the whole reason being that, you know, the, the whole desire is to prevent the suspect from arming themselves or disposing of the evidence, right? And so that's, you have to be able to put something specific. It can't just be some kind of boilerplate deal of, well, because suspects arm themselves. Well, yeah, they do sometimes. But what about in this specific case? Because you know, you're dealing with the Fourth Amendment, right, of our Constitution. And so there has, there's a, a larger burden on law enforcement to be able to just enter somebody's house without being uh, invited in or without giving uh, enough notice for that person to be able to understand what's happening, right? To just, if we're just going to go walking in somebody's house right now, there has to be a really good reason the courts have decided, rightfully so, you know? Yeah. And so I think partly in this one, another problem was that they were kind of generic on why they needed the no-knock warrant. They weren't specific in that, you know, this person has this criminal history and that they, um, they have armed themselves before or they had had a warrant served against them before. And during the knock and notice, uh, knock and announce period, they shot at the police officers or whatever, you know, yeah. there was none of that. It was just typically uh, narcotics dealers possess weapons and they attempt to dispose of drugs. Yeah, Which, so it seems like that boilerplate type of type of language, right? Yeah. <laughs> Address A. Uh, they yeah, they, they yeah. have B. They have B. They had drugs. Therefore, we can assume, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, guns and dogs and all this kind yep. of stuff. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. yeah, which which is terrible. Which is terrible. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so the officer there was fired for exactly what you mentioned. Uh, one of the officers there, I forget his name. Yeah, the, the, the uh, shooter was a... Yeah, for firing through the, I think it was the patio door with a curtain or whatever it was. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you want to get away, you and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people want to get away from the knock, no knock warrants exactly for this type of reason. Right. Um, yeah. And you mentioned before something that uh, I guess a lot of other SWAT teams want to stop doing this stuff in the middle of the night. Yeah. Be because of, of, of these types of incidents. Right. Well, when you take when you take into account the processing, how we process information, and this is why it's so important that that in policing, we just don't try to teach tactics, right? If we teach tactics without understanding these concepts, officers aren't going to make good decisions. So it's understanding the OODA loop. It's understanding how people process information. And once you do that, and once you understand that, you realize that, man, we're just, we're hamstringing ourselves by going to people's houses in the middle of the night when they're asleep. You know, yeah, if you do surveillance, right, do pre-surveillance. If they're awake at two o'clock in the morning, okay, that's fine. But if you just show up and smack a house like team, some teams do, and you have no understanding whether people are awake or asleep or whatever, you're creating a bigger headache for yourself. And so um, I know my old team, they've essentially gone to, you know, business hours, right? It's like, because you also, what are you trying to do? You're trying to collect evidence, right? A warrant service is you're trying to secure a, a SWAT team. Our job in a warrant service is to secure a location for the collection of evidence. That's what it's for. It's not to beat up somebody's house. It's not to, you know, yell at somebody and, and you know, do whatever and, and end up ruining the case, right? Because again, remember, we're always working for the victim. So who's the victim? Well, if it's a drug case, right, it's, it's the state or it's a community. If it's a person's crime and we're going to get somebody on that, then there's a victim. Maybe the victim that has no voice anymore. And if we go in and we trash things out and we ruin things and we, you know, upset and piss off the suspects so they don't want to talk to our detectives, what have we done for the case? And so, you know, the, the whole idea is, is you're a component of that process. You're a part of the total process. It's not about you. It's not about you with your tight shirt and your, you know, your cool gun <laughs> and whatever, right? No, you know, but I mean, I'm ser you know, serious about it. It's like you serve a purpose and, and that purpose is to ultimately get justice for a victim. And if you're not doing the best job you can, you're going to jeopardize the case. And if you get the case jeopardized, you're useless, right? And so that's, that's the whole thing is that a lot of teams are looking at this like, yeah, man, we need to get away from this kind of, you know, bonsai type of deal and, and running in and kicking doors and all this stuff and just go back to a much more um, systematic, procedural, professional approach using our tactics and using uh, not being predictable to a suspect in order to uh, facilitate that the best way we can. I want to ask you about accountability. Where does where does the accountability come from? The district attorney, from from the city management, you know, the higher ups. Because I, I read a story one time. I did a, a previous episode when I talked about yeah. these type of no knock warrants and all that kind of stuff. And um, they were talking about this one case where this one police department, uh, I guess, you know, they gave them whatever weapons they had, you know, whatever they had, MP4s. I don't know, whatever they had. And this one guy carried a shotgun, which was not standard issue. And so the guy used a shotgun, I, and he, he used it, 
either kill the dog or kill the person. I can't remember exactly the whole story. And so, but no charges were ever brought against this guy, right? So, so all that we're talking about uh, with all these police reforms that people mm. want to do, it's really just from a lack of accountability, right? Because when things go wrong, yeah. no yeah. one's holding anyone accountable, right? So if you, yeah. if I, if I bring a shotgun, if we're doing a no-knock warrant or doing a warrant, whatever. It's part of our policy procedure. Nobody has a shotgun, but I have one. I use it, and I'm not held accountable. Yeah. This emboldens everyone else. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I started saying this years ago, right, because I started looking at these different cases of officer-involved shootings, and especially people who are unarmed or whatever, right? And I'm not talking about race. I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about anything because here in Colorado, it's it's not white on black. It's, it's white officers shooting white citizens right so it's it's just the action it's the action and you know you're right is i started to tell people i said you guys better start paying attention because um police aren't being held accountable by themselves they aren't being held accountable by their agencies and now they're not being held accountable by district attorneys and i i cited a couple different instances where you know uh we had one here in colorado several years ago where uh, some police officers chased a guy uh, in a vehicle. He jumped out and ran out into a field out in the, uh, you know, out in a kind of rural area. And uh, three officers pursued him on foot. And he couldn't keep running. I guess he turned around to come back towards him. And he reached behind him, behind them, and they shot him, shot him and killed him. Well, he didn't have a weapon on him. He just reached behind him, like, to, to act as though he had a weapon, and they shot and killed him. And, you know, for me, I, 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 I get it, but at the same time, you guys were out in the middle of nowhere. You, you had distance. You had a lot of distance. Um, you know, where's the decision-making in that? Well, the DA said, even though he wasn't armed, if he had a weapon, he could have used it against him. And, and I'm like, How? Wait, okay, well, then wherever <laughs> is the accountability for a police officer, right? Yeah. Wherever is that? How, however, is a police officer ever going to be accountable in by that district attorney if if they're saying, yeah, we know he didn't have a weapon or we understand that, but if he did, he could have used it. Well, yeah, right. And if I had a nuclear bomb, I could have activated it and blown up everybody. But it's you know what I mean. And it, and so yeah, the accountability has to be there on all the levels. And I think what we have is is so often that people are willing to give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt beyond the doubt, right? When there is no doubt that, that the police officer messed up, they still get the benefit of the doubt. But there is no doubt. They messed up, Yeah. right? Yeah. I agree. You talked before about, um, uh, you know, SWAT teams and these different um, – Tactical narcotics teams, whatever people call their call their call their yeah. drug enforcement teams, whatever. What's your thoughts about cross training cross training them so they can have the same OODA loop principles and all that kind of stuff? What's what's your thoughts about that? It's beautiful. Um, years ago, we went and did a training in uh, South Dakota, and that's why the guy brought us in. The the uh, he was a, a SWAT team team leader, what have you. He said, "I want you to come do a basic class." And I'm sending my entire narcotics unit through the class because I want them to understand these principles. And I thought it was great because they were doing the same thing. Kick the door open. They had a big dude on the team. He would run in and anybody who wasn't immediately compliant, he would just pile drive them. 
And the guy I was teaching with was bigger than me, right? I'm like 6'3", 250, and he's like 6'6", 270. And we both looked at this guy that they had running in there, and we're like, how does this make sense to you? I mean, we're, we're about your size, and we wouldn't do that. And But it's they, they definitely need this training. And one of the things that I talk about with um, people in my classes, and I do, is and, and my agency has been doing this for a lot of years, is we train our patrol officers in these concepts and these principles and then these tactics, understanding that they're not going to be doing the high risk warrants and stuff like that because our policy, the policy of the agency is such that they can't just cowboy it like that. But at least when they have to go search a building in the middle of the night, right, on an open door or something like that, they have good solid movement tactics and they got good tactics working together like two or three or four officers that it makes them safer. You know, and, and we talk about we talk about all this stuff about making officers safer and, you know, I go home at the end of my shift and all this stuff. And then we do these crazy tactics that completely jeopardize officer safety. And, and, it, and so many agencies, they go like, oh, we don't want to train our patrol officers in advanced tactics because then they'll use them. And it's like, no, that's, that's what your policy is for, man. That's what your policy says. If this, then that, right? But when they're searching a building in the middle of the night, do you want them to have good solid movement tactics and, and understand the processing? Or do you want them to be doing crazy stuff and getting shot in a, in a office building over some computers? You know? Yeah. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was uh, the midnight shift commander, I had a guy working underneath me. He's a sergeant or lieutenant. I can't remember. Which he, which he was. But anyway, so he's that, that far down because you're so far up. Oh, this time wasn't that far up. Trust me. <laughs> trust me. But anyway, so we were talking and um, it was it was over the weekend. And, you know, as uh, as being that far up, I, I didn't have to work yeah, the weekend. Yeah. Anymore, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I so I come so I come in and he's telling me about this situation where they were trying to where they're trying to uh, uh, they had a building surrounded and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't need to come in for that, but they were able to handle it. And so he's telling them, uh, he, he's telling me the story about, you know, these guys didn't understand the three side and, and the two side. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well, wh wh why are you telling me this? It was like, you know, somebody, we got to get these guys up to speed. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah we do. You're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, the, you're the SWAT guy, right? Yeah. You're the yeah. SWAT guy. Yeah. You have, yeah. you have this rank. Uh, by tomorrow night, you're gonna have a presentation for these guys, a 10 minute presentation, a roll call. And we're gonna talk so that way when I say I'm on the three side of the building, everybody knows where I'm at, and you can we can start to coordinate. So I so I'm I'm saying that there are some definitely some principles yeah. that we oh, yeah. need to take from SWAT and, or or ERT, whatever people call their teams, mm -hmm. and just learn and just learn these kind of things. And, I, and you know that those principles about the preservation of life and all that is, is important. People will forget yeah. that after time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and they're just basic. But, but trust me, man, like I got a five-step, the five-step decision-making process that I talk about. And it's like, you just go, okay, we just run it down, run it down, right? We got the safety priorities. We got the intel. What are our facts, right? Not, not the flying monkeys, right? But what do we know about this? Not fantasy, right? What do we know about the situation? What's our environment? Where are we operating? You know, um, what's our tools, tactics, and our training? And then what's our... Um, and then what's our experience, right? What's our, our officer instinct say? And that's one of the big things is that um, we don't 
we, we try to suppress officers' instincts a lot of times now. And we say, you know, oh, you know, just do this, whatever. And the officer's like, man, this doesn't feel right to me. But, oh, my gosh, I, better, I guess I have to do it this way. And then things go sideways. And we're like, and, they, you know, the officer's like, you know, if, if they're lucky enough to still be around, they're like, yeah, this didn't feel right. You know? It's like, whoa, man, we need to listen to that. You have this, you know, you talk about it like a 20-year cop has this experience base that is almost as good. It's a Rolodex, right? It's like a Rolodex information. They just go, I've been here before. This, it, and things went bad if we did this. So yeah. let's not let's try to not do this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, thanks for signing on, Sibine. So this is a situation here that's here in Connecticut, which Karen is talking about. Uh, State's Attorney Gerald Hardy withdrew her nomination, renomination bid today in con amid controversy surrounding her lack of making a decision about several old police shootings. So she was, that's actually fairly old, right? I, I think I was still working when she was getting a lot of heat from these uh uh, from these, from the state police and and other you know police agencies, because she wouldn't, she was taking so long to review uh, old police shootings and just wouldn't make a decision, and which is which is really unfortunate. But you know you got to do the job. You know if you got to stay yeah, late some yeah. some nights, you gotta you gotta gotta get it done. You gotta do it. You gotta get it done. What what's your what's your uh, thoughts about there's there no arrests in this in this particular case, uh, in the Taylor case? What what's your thought? Are there going to be arrests? What do you, what do you think? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's, and that's the thing is, is when you look at the way some of the DAs, they make their decisions, right? And it's like, they want to have, you know, they want to have the officer saying, yeah, man, I completely jacked this up. I, I knew it was illegal and I shouldn't have done it. And so then otherwise they're like, man, I don't really want to, you know, try this officer again, give them the benefit of the doubt, even if there is no doubt. I mean, at some point, really at some point, when we're talking about the public trust and we're talking about, and I'm not saying this just because you got to placate the public, but I'm talking about when the public is sitting there going, it seems like these officers just, there's no accountability for anything, right? Because let's talk about, uh, did they violate policy? Did they violate, you know, uh, cost, any constitutional, uh, are there any constitutional issues? Uh, did they violate any other uh, state or local laws? Um, what about negligence, right? Uh, manslaughter. Yeah, okay, you're not going to get them for murder because uh, how, you know, depending on what the elements of that are, you know, in uh, um, Kentucky. But it's, you know, what, what about the negligence, right? The negligent homicide, you know, manslaughter or what have you. It's like there has to be some accountability for these officers, and, you know, I keep trying to find stuff out and, and as much as I can about, okay, what's going on with the case and, and the other cases too that, that I look into. And, okay, what are they saying in court? Um, you know, kind of get the feel of what the DA might be saying. You know, like you talk about the Arbery, the Arbery case when he's, the DA puts out a letter ahead of everything saying, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't a crime. I'm just saying it now. I don't think this was a crime. And, and then the state comes back and goes, oh, yeah, this was a crime, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it's, I try to get the feel of what the DAs are, are, are looking at and thinking about and saying. And then I'll try to go to that state and look up their statutes, right, and see what the elements are and go, well, man, if they did this, it looks like they would have satisfied the elements for this crime, right, or something. I mean, they're just – if you've got a trained professional – 
allegedly trained professional who's acting that far out of the scope of training. When I say training, I'm talking about stuff that we've been do talking about for 20 years. Don't shoot through a wall. Don't shoot through the wind. You have to see your target threat ID, right? That is basic firearm stuff that you're accountable for every round, right? Law enforcement, we're accountable for every round. And we're pretty abysmal in our shooting anyway. What's our, it's like 18%, 20%. It's like, you know, and that's, that's by NYPD, which, you know, that's a whole nother game and FBI studies, the, the best studies that we're going to get in law enforcement. And they say we're at about an 18% hit rate. And so if that's the case, we, there has to be accountability for police officers that are just, you know, he fired off 10 rounds, whatever, and went for a reload. And it's like, what, how, how are we, how is the public supposed to say, yeah, we want you guys protecting us, you know, when we're doing stuff like that to them? Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. What's your thoughts about uh, standardized training? Um, I mean, we could talk about this for a number of different things, but but the same the, the same the same standards that go on in Nevada, Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, that every single SWAT team goes to one academy or or at least standardized. What, what's yeah. your thoughts about that? Well, the organization I I, I trained for for the last almost fifteen years, um, I just stopped this past year. <clears throat> um, they established we established uh, several years ago kind of a standardized. Uh, SOPs, what SOPs, and you know it's hard though because you say okay, um, the state of Georgia they have their own standards, right? And then they have uh, tactical team standards, and there are a few other states that do that also, right? And and I've trained in Georgia, I've I've taught classes in Georgia, but they you know some will do this, some will do that. I believe, especially in the tactics community, there has to be a um, a standardized uh, a, a standardization, right? Because you you we deal with stuff. I was an explosive breacher on my team, so I put bombs on doors, right? And there has to be the account the accountability level there is nuts, right? I'm putting explosive on your door. I'm like, I'm I'm dropping bombs, literally dropping bombs on you. And, and there has to be an accountability of, of the measurements I take, uh, the understanding I have, the knowledge I have uh, of all that stuff. And, you know, but you can go to other places like, um, you know, our snipers, right? They would go to these sniper schools, sniper craft, all these, all these like really good sniper schools before they could be a sniper on our team. And then they had to do extra training and stuff. Well, we went to a class one time, a group of us went down to New Mexico to a federal class, and there was a, another group there from another state. And one of our snipers was talking to that sniper, and he said, he said, so what, what sniper schools have you gone to? And this, snipe, this other sniper said, oh, well, I, I didn't go to any schools. Um, he pointed to one of the guys who was standing there off to the side, and he said, yeah, he's just a really good shooter. He's a good hunter and everything. So he took me out and taught me how to shoot. And we're like, wow, okay. You know, our, when you're told that, right? So our sniper just kind of goes, oh, all right. And just where do you go with that, right? What do you discuss? Okay, sounds good. Because, you know, being a sniper, your primary job is to observe and report information. It's not just to shoot. That's a critical, a critical task that you have to do 
but it's not the primary focus of your job because very rarely are you going to have to shoot somebody, but you're going to definitely have to give information to the rest of the team. And so sniper schools teach you all kinds of stuff about understanding what it means to be a sniper. So you think about a critical skill like that, and there's no standardization around this country. So, you know, yeah, you've got a, a sniper for, um, you know, might be at Houston PD, who's gone through, you know, 20 different schools to be good at it. And now he goes out to, you know, West Texas or, or something. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I like to shoot varmints and I'm pretty yeah. good at it. So. <laughs> I, I shot cans on my fence. I'm on, on a fence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really good at the 22. So they gave me a 50 caliber. All right. It's like, same thing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely believe there's got to be a formal standardization, at least for for tactical teams. Just makes sense. Uh, uh, listen, I agree. I think we see a lot less stuff. Just want to remind the audience that if you guys got any questions or comments there, just to chime on in. I want to talk about uh, the stress. You, you talk about going through the doors. I talked to one SWAT guy. Uh, actually, no, he was a wasn't a SWAT guy. He was a he was he was on the uh, the the TNT, our tactical narcotics team. And he said he was always, he was getting tired of being the first one through the door because he was always stressed out because you don't know what's on the other side, obviously. So talk about the stress or, and is there a way to decompress or to get to what, all that kind of stuff? Well, the biggest stress I had, right? I say my, my career, I had a meteoric rise to police officer. Um, <laughs> I didn't promote ever at all. I, I tried a couple of times, didn't do it. Um, I was a detective for a while. Uh, but my biggest stress was always from inside the walls of the police department. Um, it, it just was, right? It's just the way I look at things, the way I approach uh, policing, um, you know, sometimes put me at odds because I was like, does it make sense? If it doesn't make sense to me, why are we doing it? And if it doesn't make sense to, to most of the people, why are we doing it? Um, but um, I, on my tactical team, man, I was uh, the point number one through the door, or number two through the door for probably about 12 years. And um, man, you know, I, I'm just, I was just the opposite. I'll go back to police. I'll go back tomorrow if they would let me be on a SWAT team again and do the same thing I was doing. Um, because it's like, for me, time would slow down. And the ability to make decisions felt like I had forever to make decisions. Uh, even in some times where, you know, uh, somebody might pull a gun on us or something, right? Um, but but again, going back to the tactics that we use, the tactics that we use give us space and time, give us distance, give us the ability, or gave us the ability, gave me the ability, and, and quite frankly, gave the suspect the ability to catch up to us in the OODA loop and realize, no, this was the police, right? This was the police with about 20 guns and not some drug dealer coming to rip you off, so it's time to give up. And they were able to, they did do that. But it's, it's yeah, man, the stress, um, I think a lot of that for me and my team went away because we just trained, we just practiced. We became students of the game, right? And that was the biggest thing. On my team, at one point we had six, seven, seven people on my team who trained at the national level, right? Uh, tactical training. So we were always learning. We were always trying to get better because if you're going to stand in front of somebody and talk, you better have something to say, right? 
And so it was always, how can we be better? How can we learn more? How can we, you know, talking, calling agencies? Hey, man, what happened you guys there? Wow, that was crazy, man. Um, when the FBI did hit on that Alabama bunker, right? How did that happen? How did that guy fight through that? I was just with just will and perseverance right okay well how do we get some more of that right right how do we buy that so it's just that that was probably the biggest thing for as far as reducing the stress level is really having a solid foundation of why you're there like what my role is in that and having the tools the tactics and the training to accomplish my task and when I knew I had that stuff, man, it was like, like I said, everything just slowed down for me, right? And I had all day to decide stuff. You talk about training. I think that that's really so important. Forget about the, uh, the, the, the tactical side of this. How much more training should, I mean, this, I know this is an impossible question, should, should officers get? To, I mean, because... I think that I think that you and I would agree that many of the situations that we're getting into, that officers are getting into, is because they have a lack of training. They're going straight to the gun instead of doing an escalation of the use of force, yeah. right? So they yeah. somebody somebody wants to run away from them, they're pulling out their gun. Wait a minute, yeah. there's a baton, there's there's chasing the guy down, there's a all these different steps in the middle. Yep. That is becoming such a problem. Do you think it can be addressed and how much more training should oh, yeah. should officers get and be doing? Man, fantastic. Um, it, interesting. One, one stat I'll throw out I found today uh, in the Pew study, you know, Pew, the Pew Research Center is a research center. They did a lot of the police studies. Um, but they said that 40% of police officers uh, don't feel that their agencies give them uh, enough training or adequate training for them to do their job. So, four, right, no, I'm sorry. Four in 10 think they do. So 60% of the police officers don't feel that they get adequate training to do the job. So, but but what do we hear from, anytime you, you see a police officer, what do they talk about? Oh, we get best training, we got all kinds of training, we got loads of training. But, but then when it's, you know, when nobody knows their name, right? When they're anonymous, they're saying, hey, 60% are saying we don't get enough training to do our job. My thing is this, here's what I've seen. And, and I say this now, honestly, to law enforcement, because I said, like I do, I totally believe in law enforcement. I support policing 100%. Is we are at a perfect opportunity now for police officers to say, we are overwhelmed and we are not trained well enough to do all the things that you're asking us to do, right? We talked about this the other day, right? You're supposed to be a medical professional and, and administer Narcan to somebody who's having an overdose. You're supposed to be a mental health professional. You're supposed to be a drug and alcohol counselor. You're supposed to be a child count, uh, you know, a child services counselor. You're supposed to be a law enforcement officer. You're supposed, it, it's just crazy, right? And so it's like we're at a perfect spot to say we can't be a mental professional for our training. We're, we're even more dangerous because we think we know something, right? Because police officers, whenever we get a little bit of information, we think we're all schooled up, right? I'm good to go. I know how to do this now. And, and it's just not fair, right? We are we are um, we are we are encouraging that failure, right? We're we're setting these officers up for failure, and they don't. If we can be at this spot, right, where 
law enforcement can say, we got too much on our plate. Please take some stuff off. And, and let's get some other people working with us to do this. And now the police officers can go back to, to working on law enforcement, right? Training for law enforcement. And um, like I, I saw some of the people logging on here who you know that I know you had mentioned it in previous podcasts that they are uh, different discipline instructors at your agency. And so, I mean, they know if they can now go from giving somebody like uh, one of them, I think is a taser instructor. If, if they can go from now having, you know, an hour every other month for taser to having three or four hours every other month for taser, the officers are going to be better trained in, with using the taser when to use it, how to use it, when it works, when it doesn't work, right? And so if, but, but those other three hours are taken up with mental health, that does no good because now you don't know, or how to administer Narcan, which, come on, man, really? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not an EMT, right? right? And so if, if, they can, if we can replace all those other trainings with more specific training for the police officer tasks, you know, the law enforcement tasks or public safety tasks, they're going to be more effective. And, you know, it's not that we need, it's not that we need more training. They just need more relevant training and more effective training. Uh, I definitely, definitely agree. Uh, so I don't see any questions. Apparently everybody's satisfied, I guess. So um, what are your, what are your thoughts about any charges coming to this guy? And this will, we'll kind of wrap it up. It's been on an hour about, so what do you, any charges coming this way? They fired him. Any charges coming? I, you know, what I would like to see, I would like, I would like to see some charges based around the negligence and based around the fact that he, he like, just to me, just so callously just took this lady's life. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to say that he like intentionally tried to kill her or anything like that, but because you can't, I can't prove that, but just how he's just so careless you know what are your thoughts about the about the uh the the report that they were filed was incomplete right uh yeah said no, no damage the door's broken in what yeah <laughs> no, yeah there was no, none, no yeah no nobody's hurt the lady's yeah. dead yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there was like no injuries reported uh, for who <laughs> the neighbors down the street i mean it's like yeah it's like you you got a homicide here and you said no no injuries reported or no, you know, yeah. and, and it, you know, it's just, it's that sort of thing, right? That, that I tell, I tell officers all the time in class, I say, we're our worst enemies, man. Yeah. It's like the public, the public doesn't hate police officers. There's not a war on police officers. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a being tired of bad policing. And, and so it's like, it's like the public wants the police officers around. They want to be protected. They want to have this relationship, but it's this bad policing that just keeps being um, allowed, protected. I don't. I don't even know really what to say about it. And but it's like this: if we continue to have this lack of accountability for officers, even in this situation where you say, "Well, you know, the officer based on the no, not based on anything," right? It's like um, one of the things that gets me now is how we keep saying, you know, in fear for their life. Yeah. They were in fear for their life. And I'm like, I get guys when I do SWAT trainings, right? We'll do a scenario and I'll hit them because my agency, this is what we used to do on our team. 
we get done with the scenario and they shot, right? And I'd say, why'd you shoot? Like, if, if you're in a shooting, what are they going to ask you, right? You're going to sit down and have a conversation about what, what went down. And, you know, so we'd say, why'd you shoot? And at first, you know, it'd be, I was in fear for, no, you're not in fear for your life. And I hear this all the time in my classes. These are like, I was in fear for my life. I go, really? So you, you spent the last four hours planning this warrant. You've got a ballistic entry vest, a ballistic helmet. You've got a rifle, a handgun. You've got less lethal munitions. You've got nine other people coming in this house with you, but you were in fear for your life? Really? Does that make sense? You put yourself into this spot. Were you scared the entire time? <laughs> then if you're that scared, why were you here? Right. Yeah. And so it's getting away from that whole mentality of I was in fear for my life to being I was re I responded to the actions of the suspect. <laughs> Excuse me. Right. So I responded to the suspect's actions. I responded to whatever or to, you know, to protect somebody else if it's a, a hostage rescue or what have you. But it's it's the this whole thing about being in fear. But then we turn around that we're extensively trained and we're prepared. Why is it that the police officers get to be in fear, even though we have the training and experience, but the public can't be in fear, right? The public's got to be calm. The public's just got to do what the police officer says. Raise your hands up and you won't be shot. Okay, sorry, Terrence Crutcher. We still shot you, right? Don't do anything wrong. Don't commit a crime. Okay, sorry, Tamir Rice, 12-year-old boy. We shot you and killed you playing in the park. Oh, Terrence Crutcher again. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I forgot the, the young lady's name in Dallas. Where we shot her through her, her uh, Tatiana window. Jefferson. Yeah, yeah, Tatiana Jefferson shot her through the window of her house. There's another gentleman who uh, they shot same way. Another officer shot. And it's like it's like we've got to stop saying we can be in fear as the, the public safety professionals, but the public can't be in fear. The public who's intoxicated under narcotics or has mental health issues, they've got to be coherent and clear thinking, right? And it just, that's why I say, let us let the police officers go back to being peacekeepers and law enforcement officials so that we can continue to train them in that vein and give better quality training and more training so that they can be more effective and reduce the stress on these officers. What I see a lot of officers, like you're saying, is they're anxious, they're, they're worried, and they're, they're, they are scared, but they shouldn't be. And that, you know, like you said to me, you know, with the stress going through the door, I was like, I loved it. Because I, I felt like I had the training, the knowledge, the tactics, the tools, the people with me who were equally trained to handle the issues, to handle the problems, right? And, and, you know, and that's the thing. So, you know, like I, my big thing I'd say to people all the time is, is when we have doctors, right, a doctor's not a surgeon, gynecologist, orthopedist, uh, you know, uh, pediatrician, ER doc, all that stuff, right? They specialize. But we're making our police officers be everything to everybody. And then we wonder why our police officers are anxious, why they're stressed out. Well, if I had to pretend to be a psychologist and a psychiatrist on a daily basis and then turn around and go handle a DUI and then go over here and handle, a, a, you know, a shots fired call, I'd be stressed out, too. 
It almost seems like a completely different job. Completely different. You can go, yeah, you can go from guarding a crime scene to the first one through a door. And this yeah. is all just in patrol, right? Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, long tracks yeah. and searches and stuff. So you got to run marathons. And it's almost like, what? You know, it's. Yeah. And so Chris Casey's saying the same thing. Police officers continue to yeah. be spread way too thin. Many firefighters uh, don't like having to give Narcan either. Chris works in our communications. I keep saying our <laughs> in a water department, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, dispatch center, and so they don't like having to give uh, Narcan yeah. either. And I can remember when we first got Narcan. You know, of course, we're all making, you know, we're all making jokes about it and stuff. You know, next mm -hmm. thing you know, we'll be we'll be strapping out gurneys and stuff and doing open heart surgery in, in the middle of the road. Yeah. So, so we get these Narcans, right? And you gotta this. So this person is down in front of you, not breathing or or doing that snore and all that kind of stuff. And you gotta operate these fine motor skills, <laughs> right? Of, of squeezing yeah. the thing just one halfway and then give it to them. And then, uh, come on, man, you know, why yeah. would you expect an officer to be able to do that? And then, meanwhile, go handle a shots fired call or, or just come from a shots fired call. Just come from, yeah, <laughs> right. So, so you all, all these different emotions are being pulled in all these different directions. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's just way too much. Just way too much. Yeah. So, and well, how many times do you practice the Narcan? Yeah, once every every two years, whatever it is, you know. It's just oh, like, yeah. What? So, what? Yeah. So here, <laughs> under the gun, you better do it right. You better, you better do it right. Right. Don't don't you give know, it too much. <laughs> well, what's the you know uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers? Right, talks about what makes people experts in their field or, or so good at what they do. You know, as far as most people are just operating this one thing, but then you have this outlier of there's so somebody's so much better, and it goes back to the thing of you know to be a be an expert in something, you you have to repeat it about ten thousand times. And so if you're talking about you know like you said having to do fine motor skills all this stuff, but okay we practice it once every two years. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not flipping a burger, man. It's not a fry. Right. Not, not trying to disrespect uh, fast food cooks, but it's not flipping a burger, right? Right. It's, right. <laughs> it's pretty important. Yeah. So no, I, yeah, absolutely, just... absolutely. I agree. Well, listen. Uh, so I, I take it those are all the comments, and I really appreciate everyone who's who's tuned in. Uh, I'll give you the last word. Um, uh, just what's your well, one last question here. I, I want to ask everybody this. Everybody's talking about defund the police, abolish the police. We don't. We don't believe the police aren't going anywhere. W what's your thoughts about that? And then, no. we'll, then we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, defund the police, abolish the police. I'm like, come on now. Um, I'm not going to be like some of the memes where, oh, let's see how the council handles all stuff. Now, there, there's got to be law enforcement. There's going to be law enforcement, and it's like I said before. We are at a perfect opportunity to help the community to redefine a truly integrated community model, right? And, and what's going to be great about that for police officers is the police officers can step back from having to do all these different jobs and go back to being police officers. That's the beauty of it. And, you know, like when I run the world, it's, it, it's going to be so simple, right? It's like, it's like the, the mental health professionals will be there. And medical EMTs are going to be on scene. They're going to be doing their thing. And the police officer can be the police officer. And that's one of my things is I'm, I'm trying to tell uh, law enforcement agencies now and talk to officers is get in on the front end. Get in in the planning stages. Because if you look at different places around the country, like, you know, California, where they went from the, you know, like the, 
you know, uh, the use of force when they, they went and tried to pass that new bill about use of force uh, from what is reasonable to what is ne necessary or absolutely necessary to them, law enforcement didn't have a say in it by that point. It was being done for them because law enforcement kind of did this whole, uh, you know, you know, don't change your, your idiots, whatever. And then they said, oh, yeah, we'll show you what idiots we are. We'll show you how big an idiot we can be. Oh, Mark Sampson, that's my old friend, man. He's We've known each other about 50 years. <laughs> so it's, uh, but, but, you know, that's the thing is being on the floor, right? Being now when law enforcement can have a participatory uh, spot in this, right? A role in it rather than just being told how things are going to go. Because truly policing, we are the professionals. We're doing it every day. But if we don't say, hey, we'll play nice, then they're just going to, all right, we're going to decide the rules for you. And you got a choice, you know? Like you see police officers now, they're, they're you know, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of the business. I'm like, man, if I could, I got a bad hip. I can't, I, I need surgery on my hip. If I, could, if I could pass a physical agility test, I'd get back into policing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I think we're at such a good point and such a wonderful spot to be able to really design a whole new way of policing it takes a lot of pressure off police and will restore their confidence in themselves and also restore the public's trust and the public's confidence in police. Because let's face it, man, you know, you did it. You, were, you, you followed a calling to do it for a reason. And so many officers do do that. And we can't get rid of those people because we say, oh, you know, they aren't doing good for us. They want to do good. They want to. And we just have to we have to figure out what that looks like to me, right? Absolutely, I agree. I agree. So I want to thank everyone who tuned in. Uh, both Marks, Mark Sampson, <laughs> uh, Mark, Chiro, Tiffany, Sibonet, Chris, Karen. Karen is uh, guest next week. Uh, former detective uh, Karen Cerruti. She's going to talk about her time in the DB, time in Waterbury. Hi. And uh, we're going to talk about, you know, the need for more African-Americans to kind of step up and take advantage of these times now, yeah. how to get more yeah. African-Americans to to not kind of step away from law enforcement and say, yep. look at these viral videos and say, we don't listen, we don't want to do that, but try to get us to, to do it. And she's works as an investigator for DCF, I believe. So she's going to talk about all that kind of stuff. So it should be a good conversation. Yeah, good, good. Uh, there has to be increased representation. Has to be. Absolutely. And uh, Sean and Marlene and Mike former detective he's doing something with law enforcement too i think or mike mckenna what are you doing he's doing something now with the uh, dcf or something something down there in florida somewhere in the sunshine state where i want to oh man to yeah somewhere, somewhere oh, where we need to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah got out yeah. of northeast all down in yeah, florida huh? absolutely oh, absolutely yeah so uh so i appreciate everybody tuning in um so tune in next week we have our very own detective saruti up here retired detective saruti and Mark, uh, tell everybody about your about your what, what website. Uh, people want to contact oh. you, get training, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, no, definitely. Thank you. Um, my uh, website onyxtg.com on, for Onyx Training Group. Um, go there. Uh, like I said, do uh, I do basic tactical training? Do uh, patrol level, advanced patrol training, um, tactical team training. Do uh, diversity and anti bias policing training. Um, you know, uh, I'm on Instagram under Onyx, Onyx Training, Onyx TG. 
uh, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can hit me up. Um, Facebook is Onyx Training. My website, uh, email, phone, call me, whatever. Um, if you have any questions, anybody, uh, hit me up. I'm very open to it. You know, I'll tell it like it is. I'll tell it the way I see it. You know, you may agree with me, you may not. That's okay. Um, you know, it's one of the guys I train with doesn't make my doesn't make my bourbon taste any different at the end of the day, whether you agree with me or not. Um, but you know, that's the whole thing is we have to understand that that law enforcement is a diverse community, and we got to be diverse, and we have to open up our thinking and, and be diverse. But yeah, hit me up. Love to. Uh, train wherever it's what I do, you know, um, I trained in Connecticut several times. Um, love it back there. It's a nice place. Um, but yeah, yeah some, and I just want to, some, some, yeah. <laughs> I, hey, I'm just saying it's all good. Right? I'm, saying it's all good. I'm not going to, I'm not going to call anybody out, put anybody down. I want to make enemies. Um, but I also definitely want to thank you captain for having me on. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. As I look at these different voices out there from law enforcement, it's so critical that that these diverse voices and especially like you have in your supervision, your administrative experience, being able to, you know, counsel newer officers, younger officers and mentor and, and be able to to direct them in the way that's going to keep make them be good guardians of their communities. I mean, that's that's the key. So I appreciate that. And I thank you for uh, playing your part in this. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to do what I can. Karen, I hope I did. I don't know. I, I think I said that, right? You're retired detective and currently a DCF investigator. I believe I said that. I hope I did. Anyway, you'll be on next week. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And thank you for, for recruiting for next week. So uh, so thank you to everyone who joined in. Really, really appreciate it. Leonard Doe joined in and watched the whole feed. I'm glad he was educated. Oh, Leonard, uh, yeah. Educated. yeah. He's yeah. out here in Colorado. He's a good guy. Okay. I got to get out there one day, man. That's one of the oh, states yeah, I got to see. Get out here. Yeah. Come yeah. on out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Really, really appreciate it. And we will see you guys next week unless there's something crazy goes on and I got to do another post or something like that. And uh, Mark also posts on IG almost every day, right? So you can yeah, see what yeah. his thoughts are and all that kind of stuff. So make sure you follow him. Onyx uh, TG on on uh, Instagram. So make sure you follow him. Okay, guys. We'll take guys. Take care. We'll see you later. Take care. Much love and peace. Thanks. All right. All right, now I stopped the